I just wanted to mention before we begin the show this evening that next year, next week, there will um, not be a Monday night shear, although we rarely uh, miss or don't like to miss at all, but I'll be traveling Mitz Hashem uh, for the yeshiva uh, overseas and coming back on Monday evening. Uh, so <coughs> we'll have to take a break for next week. I'll get Parshas Baloscha twice and we will meet again in the in two weeks' time. In the meanwhile, we take a look at the Parsha of Shalach. And there's a well-known comment of Rashi regarding the opening uh, of Shalach. If we read the Pasuk, Vayidaber Hashem HaMoshe Lemor, Perig Yud Gimel, Pasuk Aleph, and then Pasuk Beis, Shalach Lecha Anashim, send for yourself, Spies, Viosuris, Eretz Canaan, let them spy out the land, etc. <coughs> and Rashi, as he sometimes does in the course of his commentary, gets involved in a discussion known as smichus parshios, juxtaposition of sections. Often, uh, Rashi will be curious, and curious on our behalf, as to why certain sections in the Torah follow on from each other. And here is just such a, a situation. Uh, our Parsha begins with the Miraglim, the spies sent to Eretz Canaan, and it follows on immediately from the end of last week's Parsha, Balosacha, <coughs> which deals with uh, Miriam and Aaron uh, talking about Moshe, and then Miriam was punished. And uh, what's the flow? What's the sequence? How does one follow on from the other? And Rashi raises the question. Why is the Miraglim juxtaposed and put next to the Parsha of Miriam? <coughs> because Miriam was punished for things that she said. She spoke about her brother even though, of course, the matter is so mild and so um, microscopically uh, difficult to, to understand what it is that she said wrong, but even so, it was considered to be wrong and she was punished for what she said. And these Risharim, these Miraglim, they saw and they didn't take any moral instruction, they didn't take, learn any lesson from Miriam. As if to say, Miriam was punished for what she said, maybe we should be careful about what we say. That's the substance of Rashi's comment, and that's the, the, the juxtaposition, the question, the connection between these two parshas. Now, as we know, when it comes to Rashi, there will always be two avenues that we can pursue with regards to looking into Rashi. The first is to examine the content of what he says for itself. And as we've mentioned a number of times, uh, most of Rashi's content per se is taken from Hazal. So to examine the, the message itself. But in addition to that, or alongside that, there's the question of Rashi's methodology. As if to say why Rashi chooses to quote the things that he does. And here too, when we come to a Rashi like this, and Rashi wants to know why are these two sections one after the other 
So the Klau Godel, the rule of thumb when it comes to the Smichus Parshius Rashis, the juxtaposition Rashis, is that when Rashi asks, why are these two Parshas together? Our first response should be to counter-ask. Why shouldn't they be together? Why wouldn't one follow on one from the other? Because the extent to which we are ex can expect that naturally one happened after the other, and that's why one is recorded after the other, so there isn't really what to explain. Which means that whenever Rashi asks the question, Lama Nismacha, why are they together? The subtext is Lama Lo. Why should they not be? Because that will be the, the um, background to why Rashi feels that something needs to be resolved. And if that's true, then our situation should present us with a difficulty. It should present us with a difficulty because there is no difficulty, meaning there is no reason to think that these two things should not be written one after the other. After all, first the, the episode with Miriam happened, and as far as we know, the next thing that happened was the episode with the Miraglim. If they happened one after the other, they should naturally be written, be written one after the other, and hence there's nothing that needs to be explained. Why then does Rashi feel the need to explain it? And this is a classic um, response, in a sense, to try and get more of an understanding of what Rashi is doing. And there are many answers to this question, but I would like just to present, and in this instance, I present it as much for the question as I do for, for his answer. But the Maskele David has a very interesting um, understanding of this Rashi. And again, to put the question into one sentence, if the two events happened one after the other, they should naturally be recorded one after the other. Why should Rashi feel that this needs to be explained? Rather, says the Maskele David, this instance of Rashi's Smichas Parshia's comment is unusual. Because Rashi's not dealing with the parshios as sections in the Torah. He's not asking why one was written after the other. Miraglim after Miriam. He's talking about the parshios in, in the sense of the events. Why did the events happen one after the other? Why, why was the episode of the Miraglim after the episode of Miriam? Historically. Not scripturally, which is a recording of that. But why did the events happen in that sequence? And what is the background to, to, to Rashi's question? Why would we assume that they, sh that they should have had a different order? The reason is very simple, says the Maskele David. The Jewish people, it's been at least a month and from the time that they have traveled on from Har Sinai. As is detailed in last week's Parsha and the beginning of Devarim, as we know, as soon as they start to make their way towards the land of Israel, the people approach Moshe and ask to send spies. This is a crucial piece of information. We don't find it in our Parsha that the idea came from the people, but we do in the beginning of Devarim. So the people approach, we're on the way, we need to send spies. We naturally assume that that idea was put to Moshe as soon as they began to travel, or at least when they reached the destination of Kadesh. They've been there for a month. Apparently, therefore, HaKadosh Baruch, who did not give a response to their request, 
until a month later. And that is called a delayed reaction. If they approached Moshe with the idea, as soon as they traveled on from Har Sinai, why is it that Moshe, or HaKadosh Baruch Hu, more correctly, waited till a month had elapsed until giving the response of Shlach Lecha Anoshim? That is the question. And the answer to that is because HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to help them as much as possible bring this mission to a positive conclusion. And in order to do so, he waited until they would have a basis to derive a message of the importance of positive speech. As if to say, the answer could have been given straight away in the beginning of the month, but somehow Hashem is waiting. He's waiting because something else will happen. And that something is Miriam. And, and after Miriam, finally Hashem is ready to say to them, Shlach Lecha Anoshim. The, the ground is, 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 is fertile for a positive outcome. And this, therefore, is Rashi's question. Lama Nismecha Parshas Miraklim, again, discussing why the events happened in this order, why what should have been happened earlier was delayed a month. Um, and the answer is, in order to allow them to learn a lesson from Miriam, of course, there's never any guarantees in the event they did not learn the lesson from Miriam, but that is uh, Maskeladov's explanation of Rashi. And as we, as we mentioned, the chinuch the, the that we get from this in learning Rashi is always to be on the lookout. Whenever Rashi asks the question, Lama Nismacha, why are these two things written juxtaposed? We are entitled and encouraged to ask, well, why shouldn't there be? There must be a subtext somewhere which will give us a deeper understanding of the Rashi. Well, moving from the opening Rashi, Lugufo Shel Inyan, to get down to business with regards to the Miraglim themselves. And I have to say, I came across uh, an approach to this episode where there's a concurrence between two of the greats, the Chassam Sofer and the Shemi Shmuel of Sokachov. Each one says it in their way and adds their, their nuances, their hue and color. But in, in principle, they both adopt a similar approach. And we begin with the most basic of questions, the question that you, you have to ask when you learn Parsha Shalach, even if you asked it last year. And that is <clears throat> set the idea of sending spies. Is it good for the Jews or not? Is it a good idea? Is it a positive initiative or is it not? And it seems that however you will answer that question will lead you to a difficulty. It's either a good idea or it's a bad idea. If it's a bad idea, then why did it go ahead? And HaKadosh Baruch Hu at least gives it sanction to go ahead. Why would he allow a bad idea to go ahead? Rather, we must conclude it was a good idea. But it ended badly. So either way, you have to work out. It, the, it can't be necessarily good, otherwise it wouldn't have failed. It can't be necessarily bad, otherwise it wouldn't have been allowed. We're forced to conclude that there's, there is a way in which sending spies can have a positive outcome, can be a positive idea and have a positive outcome, and there is an, a, an alternative way that it's a negative idea with a disastrous outcome. And what are those two ways? We see further. Again, in, in Parshas Devarim is 
quote-unquote required reading for a full understanding of the episode of the spies because that's where we see the Jewish people approached Moshe, we'd like to send spies, Nishlecha anashim lefaneinu, and Moshe says, Vayitav hadavar be'enai, and I thought it was a good idea. So we have on record Moshe's own words, he thinks it's a good idea. A further difficulty, which needs to be reckoned with, in the beginning of Sefer Yehoshua, chapter 2, we find that Yehoshua sends two spies. They are Kalev and Pinchas, and it's actually the Haftorah for Parsha Shalach. And here, one has to ask, Yeshua of all people, if there's any way that one can sum up lessons learned from Parsha Shalach, I think it would be to say, when in doubt, don't send spies. It's not going to end well. And who better to learn from history than Yeshua himself, who was one of the spies? And he sends Kalev, who was also one of the spies. It must be that notwithstanding the disaster that took place in our Parsha, Yehoshua is confident that history will not repeat itself. Where does that confidence come from? And with this in mind, we come back to the opening words of of the Parsha, Shalach Lecha Anashim. And we have to be very careful and sensitive we see the words shalach lecha, send, if we would translate, I think, shalach lecha, send for yourself. What is the meaning of such a, uh, an expression? Send for yourself. Uh, and, and not for who? And it's for everyone. What is the meaning of that extra word lecha? Indeed, we know, Rashi says that shalach lecha, it's based on the Gemara, shalach lecha means if you want to send, it's up to you. In other words, Rashi so takes notice of the word lecha for you means that it's your decision. Even though shalach means send. So we see how seriously Rashi responds to, to the extra word lecha to, to, to render this phrase more as permission than as a command. Other Mepharshim, however, are more inclined to, to, to see the word shalach as a command. What then is the import of that second word, lacha? That is the question. What would have happened if it just said shlach anashim? Our final question, our opening question that is, we find that the Jewish people are punished very harshly for what happened with the spies. And again, on a basic level, we're entitled to ask why. As if to say, they asked to send spies and permission was granted. And the spies came back and they gave a terrible report. Now, the spies themselves undoubtedly deserve to be punished for, for slandering the land that way. But what exactly are we, are we indicting the Jewish people for? They seem to have been almost in, in an impossible situation. Had the Miraglium said the land is wonderful and the people didn't believe them, that's a different story. But that's not what happened. They painted it so dark and, and gave such a, 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 a terrifying depiction 
and description of what they saw. So what do you want from the people? Presumably, I, I think the, the simple answer is they should have disbelieved the spies regardless of what they say. But it's a lot to ask. Is, is, that, is that how it was? And this now brings us to, to the two great Gedolim, the Chassam Sofer and the Shem Shemal. Shem Shemal. I think the consensus of the Mepharshim is that if we would ask the question, sending spies, is it good for the Jews or not? If ever it was true that it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it, it's with regards to sending spies. Clearly, it can be a positive venture and could be a negative venture. What determines positive and what's a recipe for disaster? The positive way, of course, is that if it's coming from and being launched from a, a position of trust in Hashem, meaning Hashem has told us the land will be given to us. Of course, we do our due diligence, what is known as hishtadlus, together with bitrachon, trust in Hashem. All of that is resoundingly positive. But sending spies can also be a very negative enterprise. If it's not an accompaniment to trust in Hashem, but perhaps a replacement of trust in Hashem. Perhaps they they either uh, are not sure whether Hashem will help them conquer the land, or maybe they don't want him to help them conquer the land, and maybe they don't want to conquer it themselves. There's all sorts of negative launching that can lead the entire enterprise to be be, uh, uh, asking for trouble. The Jewish people themselves come with the question, and in the end it will, it will emerge that their motivation was less than, than as it should be. Their motivation was left what to be desired, was not with full bitachon. Moshe himself has, has, full, has full bitachon. When the Jewish people say, let's come and send spies, says Moshe, I thought it's a good idea. It is a good idea. Meaning, if you're like Moshe, it's a good idea. The people's motivation was less pure. They had other ideas. They had an agenda, and it was a negative one. So you have, on the one hand, Moshe, who wants to send spies for the right reasons. The people who want to spend spies for not the right reasons. And in between, you have the miraculum, these 12 people that were sent. And the question is, the million dollar question is, what about them? Was their motivation more like Moshe's as an expression of bitachon or like the people's as a displacement of bitachon? And this brings us closer now to to the core of the matter. There is a fascinating Mishnah in the fifth parak of Maseches Brachos. And it says as follows. Brachos, of course, we know Maseches Brachos about Brachos, about davening. And in the fifth parak, the Mishnah says, Hamispalel v'to'ah. If a person is davening and he made a mistake, Simon Rallo, it's not a good sign. It's a bad sign for him. Meaning it's almost as he's, he's being given a sign from heaven to, to, to check into things. That's like a, it's like a message. To make a mistake during davening, is, uh, that's, that's a message saying, could do better. 
Then, says the Mishnah, What if he's a chazan? And he makes a mistake. Says the Mishnah, It's a bad sign for the community. It's a bad sign for the congregation. That's very interesting. Sometimes when the chazan makes a mistake, the congregation make a yomtuv. But here, the Mishnah is telling us that if he made a mistake, it augurs bad or, or reflects badly on the congregation. Why? The Mishnah quotes very well-known words. Mishum sheshlucho shel adam kamoso. Because a person's emissary is like themselves. If you send someone to do something for you, it's like you're doing it. And therefore, if he sent a message, it could be a message. If one could borrow the expression, return to sender. It's a message for, for, for the one who sent him. And if the community sent him, it's a message for the community. Very interesting. So much is said in a halachic sense on the idea of shalucho shalodim kamoso. Your shliach is like you. We perform mitzvahs in that way. Uh, just before Pesach, uh, you, you use that concept to, to sell your chametz. And you go to the rabbi. And you go to the rabbi. It's not because you're selling your chametz to the rabbi. He doesn't want to own your chametz uh, over Pesach. That would be objectionable. You want to use the rabbi to sell your chametz. He's your shaliach. And, and in so many other areas, we have uh, the concept of shlucha shaladim kamosa. But the very first time in Shas that it is mentioned, the only time in the Mishnah, actually, it's here, with this, this concept, the chazan of the congregation, it's like the congregation. A message to him is a message for them. And so it is with everything. The quality of the shaliach and the results of the shaliach and the efficacy of his shlichus will often be dependent on the quality of those who sent him. And if that's the case, then we need to ask a very interesting question about the Meraglim. The Meraglim were shlichim. They're emissaries. The question is, shlichim shel me. Whose emissaries are they? Who are their senders? Who do they represent? Because as we can appreciate, the answer to that question will be decisive. If they're the shalichim of Moshe, and if he is the sender, then the, the positive quality of Moshe will insinuate itself and inform a positive mission for them. Conversely, if they're shalichim of the Jewish people who have less ideal motivations, that could filter into the vision and experience of the miraculum themselves. That's why it's such an important question. And this now brings us back to the opening of our Parsha, where Hashem says to Moshe, Shlach lecha anoshim, send people for you. It seems like it's emphasizing something. Indeed it is. These should be your shaliach. That is to say, they should be your shalichim. And not anyone else's. Because other senders may not have such idealistic motivation, it could jeopardize the mission. That's a fascinating way of understanding shlach lecha. Keep them as your shlichim. Make sure they're not anyone else's shlichim. 
But interestingly, we find that Moshe does not withhold, he does not keep the Miraglim exclusively as his emissaries. Perhaps, as is often the case, Moshe has a benevolent view of the Jewish people. Moshe, oh, have Yisrael higher. Perhaps he didn't recognize that there was something wrong with the Jewish people's motivation. How can we see? How can we tell who sent the Miraglim? Says Hassam Sofer, it's very easy. If you want to know who sent them, see who they report back to. And then you'll see. Well, who do they report back to? In Perik Kafhe, pardon me, in Posuk Kafhe of Perik Yud Gimel, in Posuk Kafhe of our Parsha. What do we find? Again, Perik Yud Gimel, Posuk Kafhe, Vayashuvu Mitur Haaretz, they came back from touring the land. Miketz Arbaimiyom at the end of 40 days, Vayelchu, Posuk Kafab, and they went, Vayovou El Moshe. And they came to Moshe, Aaron, and the entire congregation. As the Pasuk continues, And they reported back to them, and to the entire Ada, the entire congregation. That means that the Meraglim saw themselves not only as emissaries of Moshe and Aaron, to whom they should report back, but also as the people. And therefore, because in the end, they did go as emissaries of the people, a lot of what they said bodes or or reflects very negatively, but not just on them. Siman ra l'sholcha. In other words, the, the, the fascinating idea of the Hassam Sofer is that the relationship between the Jewish people and the reports of the spies was not merely responsive. The Jewish people's attitude had an active effect on the negative reports of the spies. The relationship, there was a symbiosis between them, whereby it's not just that the spies had their own decisions and then brought that back to the people. A lot of the decisions of the spies is a function of the fact that they are shlichim of the people. And as such, says Hassam Sofer, we can no longer ask, why would the people judge so harshly for believing the spies? What else could they do? The spies brought back a negative report, says Hassam Sofer. They're not just punished for their actions of believing the the spies. They're punished for their role in contributing to the negative uh, reports of the spies as their senders. Really, uh, I think it changes the entire way. Otherwise, you have 12 criminals, or more correctly, 10 out of 12 criminals, and 600,000 victims. It's not so simple. You have 10 emissaries, and you have 600,000 aiders and abettors, enablers, we would call them. That's the, that's the full relationship. And in light of this, achar hadvarim ha'ele, so if we now come back again to the Haftorah, where Yeshua sends spies, we find something very interesting. He sends the spies, and we now know all eyes should turn to the critical question, who do they report back to? Because that will give us uh, an indication of whose of whose shlichim they were, says the penultimate pasuk of the Haftarah, Yeshua Perik Beis pasuk Kaf Gimel, Vayashuvu 
the two men came back, came down from the mountain, they passed and they came, El Yoshua ben Nun. They came to Yoshua, and they told him everything that had happened to them. What is so significant about this? They report back to Yoshua. They do not report back to the people. They haven't been sent by the people. They don't come back to the people. They report back to Yeshua because they Yeshua shlichim. That's the lesson that Yeshua learned to ensure that they, they are, rep, are being sent by people whose motivation is pure. So much so that the Shem Yishmur says an even uh, a fascinating Chiddush just in, in Pshat, I would say. Because how does the Haftarah begin? Again, just to go to the opening of uh, Yeshua Peret Beis, always good to have occasion to look into the Navi. Pasuk Aleph, the Haftarah begins, Vayishlach Yeshua benun minashitim shnaim anashim, Miraglim Cheresh Lemor. Yeshua sent from Shittim, that's where they were, two people, spies, Cheresh. What does Cheresh mean? Cheresh means secretively. Hashash. Cheresh. Quietly. And now the question is, well, secretly from whom? I mean, every, every Miragel is secret. Every spy is secret. They're not proclaiming their, their tour of the land to the people of Canaan, even though they found out somehow anyway. But uh, they're obviously, if they're Miraglim, so then it's, it's a secret from the people. Says the Shem Ishmuel, Cheresh doesn't mean Yeshua kept it quiet from the population of Canaan. It means he kept it secret from the Jewish people. He didn't want the Jewish people to know that he was sending Miraklim so that they shouldn't then get involved and perhaps undermine the purity of motivation in what it was to send the Miraklim in a positive way. And therefore, it's so different now than our Parsha. In our Parsha, the idea came from the people. They were sent by the people, for the people, reporting back to the people. It was all very grand scale, and it ended in disaster. And the amazing thing about the events in the Haftorah is that a lot of the Jewish people may only have found out about them when they read Sefer Yehoshua a good while later on, and then they realized that spies had been sent. In real time, not a word was said in order that it shouldn't be compromised, the quality of the mission. So these are, are really very thought-provoking uh, ideas and centering around the concept of from the Hassam Sofer. I'd like to move from here to an episode at the end of the Parsha. But it is very interesting. I remember a cousin of mine a, a number of years ago mentioned it. You see how, how attitude and motivation make a difference. If we look at the Miraglim in our Parsha, they had a relatively easy time of it. No one, no one uh, obstructed them, no one molested them, no one interfered with them, and they, the fruit is wonderful, and they came back. And, but because their attitude was off, everything was, looked disastrous. There's no way, we can't go in. They had a good experience, but they processed it in such a negative way that the answer is, no, we can't go in. Contrast that 
with the two Muraglim sent in the Haftorah. You just have to read the Haftorah. It's unbelievable. Before you could even catch your breath, they were already in trouble. They were already on the run. They spend most of the Haftorah running, hiding. Somehow, the king of, uh, of Yericho gets wind of, the, of their presence immediately. We don't know how that happened. And, they, and, and they're, they're under threat. They've got to hide in the, in the flax, and then they have to come back secretly. They've had a terrible experience. And they come back to Yeshua, and they say, It's perfect. The land is ours. You see how the, the question of with what do you go in? If it comes from, from a place of bitachon, whatever happens there, you've seen the land, it's good. Ah, you're running for your life? Doesn't matter. Here I am. So, so, so you see how much of, is, is in the, the eye of the beholder um, in terms of these two missions. But let's move on now to, uh, to Perik Tesvav, which contains a number of matters. And one of them is the episode of the Mekoshish. And that is in Perik Tesvav, Pasuk Lamed Beis. So let's see the, 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 the Psukim. They're well known, but just to, to read them, uh, the one the the first pasuk, Lamed Beis, Vayiyu Bnei Yisrael Bamidbar. So the Jewish people in their midbar, which, okay. Vayimsu'u ish mekoshesh etzim biyom hashabbos. And they found someone who was doing something on Shabbos. Mekoshesh etzim. It's not entirely ex- explicated by the pasuk as to what he was doing. Was he, was he plucking it from the ground? Was he carrying it? But, but whatever he did, it was, it was bad enough because in the end, uh, he, he was killed for, for violating Shabbos. Now, the Pasuk doesn't tell us who he was. The Pasuk just says he was an ish. He was someone. It doesn't tell us who he was. However, in the Gemara in Masechah Shabbos, in Daft Tzadik Zayin, Rabbi Akiva informs us as to his, his identity. Okay. Who was he? Says Rabbi Akiva, this Mekoshesh is none other than Tzalafchad. Who's Tzalafchad? We're going to meet him later on. He has his famous five daughters. They come and demand their inheritance and so on and so forth. And, and because Tzalafchad died and, and the Pasuk doesn't really say why. And Rabbi Akiva puts, puts the two together. Tzalafchad was the Mekoshesh. On what basis does he say this? On the basis of what's called a Gezeira Shava, the same word that links now to Psukim, Bamidbar. Our passage begins, Vayuvene Yisrael, Bamidbar, the Jewish people were in the wilderness, which is probably the most obvious thing that one could say about the Jewish people, because until further notice, they're in the wilderness. They have been for a while, they will be for a while more. They've just been told they'll be there for 40 years. So it's clearly, it's a marker. And it's not a geographical marker. It's a message of a different kind to tell us, to emphasize they're in the Midbar. Because Salafchad's daughters will later come to Moshe in Parshas Pinchas and say, Avinu meis ba Midbar. Says Rebbe Kiva, that's a lock. Because their father, Salafchad, was the Mekoshesh. So says Rebbe Akiva. And amazingly, he draws much criticism from one of his colleagues, Rabbi Yudha ben Becerra. Says Rabbi Yudha ben Becerra, Akiva, you're either right 
in identifying the Makoshish at Salafrad, or you're wrong. Either way, it's not good. You've done it. You've, it's not correct what you did, because if he wa if the the, the Salafrad wasn't the Makoshish, so then you've just uh, slandered him. If you're not if you're not right, and even if you are right. The Torah didn't tell us who he was. The Torah covers up his identity. So why are you coming and revealing it? It's quite a difficult uh, uh, criticism of Rabbi Akiva. It's right, as they say, either way you look at it, you're, you're in the wrong. You're either making a mistake or you're revealing something the Torah doesn't want to reveal. It's a very uncomfortable uh, situation here. I mean, Rabbi Akiva feels comfortable, but, uh, but, but we don't. So... So, so how, how, what do we do about that? What's most amazing is, as in other words, how do we understand the exchange between Rabbi Akiva, who feels it is acceptable to identify the Makoshesh, and his colleague, Rabbi Ben Becerra, who feels it's very objectionable. What's most interesting is, there is a parallel uh, re record of this discussion in the Sifrei. What we've quoted is the conversation as recorded in the Gemara, in Shabbos Daft Tzadik Zayin. But the Sifrei on our parsha, uh, it, it ends in the most fascinating way. Once again, Rabbi Kiva says it's a Makoshesh, says, says Rabbi Yudabim, how can you say that? That's, that's terrible. Your Motsi Laz on, on Salafchad. So far, so good, meaning so far. And then the Sifrei says, and Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra continues, so you know who he was, Salafchad? He was one of the Ma'apilim. One of those who are the Ma'apilim in our Parsha. After they were told to stay in the Midbar, there's a group that nonetheless tried to fight their way into the land. They were told not to, they disobeyed, and they were all killed. That's the Ma'apilim. Says that's who Tzalafchad was. So now Mepharshim are absolutely flabbergasted. In other words, Rabbi Yudah he just blasted Rabbi Akiva because the Torah didn't tell us why Tzalafchad died. It's just that he died. Who knows why? We don't know why. And you said that he, he died because he did this Avera. He, he, he violated Shabbos. How can you say that? It's a terrible thing to say about him. You can't say that. But what I say is that he did this other terrible sin that, uh, that uh, called the Mapilim, and that's the resolution of the matter. How is Rabbi Yudah ben Becerra, why is he not hesitant to do exactly what he just seems to have accused Rabbi Akiva of doing? The answer, says the Nitziv, in his commentary, Eimeka Nitziv to the Sifrei, is that apparently... Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra does not see the Ma'apilim as out-and-out out wicked people. It's a bit more complicated than that, or more correctly, it's a bit more complex than that. In other words, they felt very badly over having believed the spies with everything that we spoke about before, and, and wanted to stay in the desert. And now they're told, you're going to stay there for 40 years. And they want to make it right. This time yesterday, what they did would have been a mitzvah to try and conquer the land. But now they're told to stay in the Midbar. And still they want to conquer the land. To make it right. To do penance. Now they're told that it's not going to succeed. And Hashem doesn't want them to do that. 
So they're in a very blended situation because they're doing something which in principle, if only conditions were right, would have been a great mitzvah. But now it's an Aveira. But they, but they want to do it anyway to make things right. In the end, it wasn't right. But if you want to question their motivation, their motivation was idealistic. And that, that is a complicated situation. In other words, a person does the wrong thing and they know that it's the wrong thing, but all they have is their, their idealism is, 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 is fueling them on, even to disobey. A direct command from Hashem. What are you going to do with someone like that? The answer is they got punished. Maybe they did, says Zinitziv, but you know what? It's not Loshan Hara to say that Tzalafchad was one of them. That's, that is the, the, the complexity of the situation. And that's why, if you want to say he was Mechal or Shabbos, chas v'chalila. You can't say, we don't know, you can't say. But if you want to say he was one of the Mapilim, at the end of the day, the Mapilim were all punished. But that's not, that's, that's not called uh, dis- Motsi Shemra. That's not called Lashon Hara, to say that someone was of the Mapilim. What's very interesting is, with this idea of the Nitziv, it opens up a way of understanding Rabbi Akiva also. Because, what did Rabbi Akiva say? Tzalafchad was the Mekoshesh. And he, and he got accused of Lashon Hara, so to speak. However, there's also different ways of looking at the Mekoshesh. There's a well-known opinion in Chazal that the Mekoshesh himself his kavana was l'shem shamayim. Who, whoever the Shabbos violator was, he was, he was also mechavan l'shem shamayim. How so? How could he possibly have l'shem shamayim intentions in violating Shabbos? Because the people had just been told that their journey towards the Jewish people was on hold for 40 years. There was a feeling that started to permeate throughout the people, to infiltrate throughout the people that their their entire relationship with Torah had been put on hold. That we've been derailed. We're not headed to where we're meant to be headed. Maybe we're not bound anymore by the laws that that, that define us. We're not headed to the land that we're meant to be. Maybe, so maybe the Torah is, is in hiatus for now. Which could have potentially led to just absolute collapse. Enter the Makoshesh, and the Makoshesh says, I am prepared to make an example of myself in order that people should know there should be no misapprehension that, that as much as our plans to enter the land of Israel due to our own actions have been put on hold, but the laws of the Torah are absolutely in place. And he went ahead and he deliberately violated Shabbos. And in order for a person to be killed by the Bezdin, they really have to be asking for it. They, there's witnesses and they're warned, etc. and so forth. And he almost went out of his way. By the time we're finished, no one, no one at that point or post that point felt maybe the laws of the Torah don't apply to us anymore. And it's very interesting. There's a comment of the Meshachachma. I don't recall exactly where. It's a kind of a parenthetical comment. But he says, you know, Chumash Devar, we talk about Shabbos. Shabbos is like so central, but it's interesting. It's never really spoken about at length throughout the course of the Torah. Many other things are Avodah Zarah and so on and so forth. You don't find a lot about Shabbos. 
says Meshachachma, yeah, after the Mekoshesh, you're good to go for 40 years. You don't need any exhortations about Shabbos. The people got the message. Shabbos is just fine. Very interesting. So he succeeded. But what that tells us is, says the Torah to Mima, so this now, it, it could be that Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yudah ben Becerra, as much as they argue with each other, Hutzalavchad was, but they agree in principle that, it, that if he meant it, the Shem Shamayim, it's not Lashon Hara to say who he was, even though he would, they were both punished. It's just a question of how you view these episodes and these people. How do you view the Ma'apilim? How do you view the Makoshish? The, the, the Rabbi Yudah ben Becerra views the Ma'apilim as Lashem Shamayim. They got punished. So he said, Salafchad was one of them. But Rabbi Akiva, by the same token, he views the Mekoshesh as acting Lashem Shemaim. So he has no problem identifying um, Salafchad as the Mekoshesh. What's very interesting is, as a, as a PS almost, to this discussion, and this is pointed out by, or, or, or mentioned by Rav Kuperman, that's how by my uncle Ravido Kuperman, we say that the Torah never tells you who the Makoshesh was. But it kind of does. Meaning, if we go back to Rabbi Akiva and we ask Rabbi Akiva, who was the Makoshesh? And he says, Tzalafchat. And we ask, well, how do you know? So Rabbi Akiva says, I have a methodology leading me to that conclusion. It's called Gezei Roshava, like we said. The word Bamidbar here, Bamidbar here, you need to understand the science of how Gezei Shava works. But, by, but if you're Rabbi Akiva, you know how it works. And by the time you're finished, the Torah has effectively told you. So that's very interesting. Because now when we say the Torah never tells you who the Mekoshesh was, it means it never says it in words. But if you look a little deeper, you should be able to identify him. Why does it happen that way? Says Rav Kuperman, such a, a touch of grace. Because the question as to whether it's appropriate to identify him depends on whether we view him positively or not. Externally, on the surface, it's a negative thing. He violated Shabbos. Beneath the surface, it counts for something that he did so l'shem shamayim. So do you view him positively or negatively? It depends. If you look on the surface, purely negatively. A little under the surface, you can view him positively. And that's why the identification of the Mekoshesh as Tzalafchad comes from looking under the surface. It's not stated explicitly in the Pasuk, because in terms of the, the explicit reading of the Pasuk, this was a negative thing. It's and Hara. But if you look a little deeper into his motivation, you might see something positive. And if you look a little deeper into the Psukim, you might discover who he is. That's the correlation. That's the correspondence of the, of the external layer and then beneath the external layer. Let us conclude our discussion this evening by going to the very end of the Parsha. And we'll preface by raising a question that... That, that meant that many Mepharshim have dealt with over the last eight, eight nine hundred years. Um, or however many centuries it was. It, can, it, it relates to the Rambam. The Rambam caused a bit of a stir in that 
we know <coughs> that he has his list of Tariyag mitzvahs, of 613 mitzvahs. There's an, he has an entire Sefer, Sefer HaMitzvahs, where he codifies them and he lists them again, even in the Mishnah Torah. Okay. Very interesting to see what's on the list, and sometimes equally interesting to see what's not on the list. There is a mitzvah, I believe there isn't anyone who doesn't know this as a mitzvah, and that is to remember Yitzias Mitzrayim every day. We're very familiar with it. Firstly, it's a mission at the end of the first parak of Brochus, and from the Haggadah Shal Pesach, Laman Tiskores Yom Tzeschom Eretz Mitzrayim, Kol Yemecha The only question is, what does Kol Yemecha mean? Does it mean day and night? Does it mean nowadays Yemos HaMashiach? That's the Machlokas. But in principle, to remember going out of Mitzrayim every day is, is undisputably a mitzvah as far as we can see from Chazal. Lo and behold, this mitzvah does not appear in the Rambam's list of 613 mitzvahs. And that is the question that everyone wants to know. Why does the Rambam miss out from his, from his 613 what is very clearly a mitzvah from the Torah? And before we get to the answer that relates to our Parsha, uh, I think a, a, an, an, an earlier answer, which is very important in itself, comes from the Noda Yehuda, Rav Yecheska Landau, so the author of Tshuvas Noda Yehuda, in his commentary, Tzlach, on Maseches Brachas. And he says, we should know. And the truth is that there's an entire area of scholarship called Tariag Mitzvahs, and there's an entire l- literature on the Tariag Mitzvahs. Not everything that's written in Tanakh, pardon me, not everything that's written in the Chumash, even if we would call it a mitzvah, automatically becomes one of the 613 mitzvahs. The Rambam has a number of criteria, 14 criteria, in fact, for something to be listed as one of the 613. He calls them sharashim. It's almost like 14 interviews that something needs to pass in order to be to gain entry into the classification of a mitzvah of Taryak. And one of them is, says the Nodabi Yehuda. We use the term mitzvah sometimes in a loose sense. A person does a mitzvah. It's a big mitzvah, or and so on and so forth. And in a general sense, maybe it's correct. But specifically, the word mitzvah means command. From the word sivui, in order for something to qualify as a mitzvah of the Torah, it has to be something that the Torah commands. A very uh, simple illustration of this idea, again, uh, important for us, there is a mitzvah to build the Beis HaMikdash. It's one of the, the Tariq mitzvahs, building the Beis HaMikdash. What's the source? Rambam says, the source is the Pasuk in the beginning of Parshas Truma, Vasuli Mikdash Vishakanti Basocha. That's said about the Mishkan, Parshas Truma, but it's true for the Mishkan, true for any Mikdash that becomes appropriate, available. Now, what's interesting is there are Psukim that Rabbi Yosef Cairo in the Kesef Mishnah asks, 
There are psukim later on in Chumash Devarim which are much more explicit about the base Hamikdash itself in Yerushalayim. Doesn't mention yet the city Yerushalayim, but Fahaya Hamakom Asher Yivchar Hashem Lashum Shemo Sham, the place that Hashem will choose in the land of Israel, which we now know is Yerushalayim. That's where you should bring the Karbonos. These are ex- much more appropriate and more explicit references to the base to the base Hamikdash itself. So why does the Rambam rather prefer? The Pasuk in the beginning of Truma, which is, was really stated in context about the Mishkan, you can extend it to, to later, but in Mikdash, but why choose that over something which is overtly and explicitly about the Besam Mikdash? But the answer, says the Kesav Mishnah, is very simple. Because all of those Psukim in Chumash Devarim, which are explicit about the idea of the Besam Mikdash, none of them ever say to make it. They say the place that Hashem chooses, that's where you should bring your karbonos, etc. It says everything except one thing, make a base hamikdash. It doesn't say that the Torah never commands to build a mikdash. And therefore the Rambam says, I'm looking for a commandment. If it's going to be one of the 613 commandments, there's got to be a command. And if I don't find it there, I go back to the beginning of Truma. And if it was said in the, in the Mishkan, it's also true for other Bate Mikdash. That's a classic example of the exactitude of this idea. And what does this have to do with us? Says the Salah. The Nodi in the Tzalach. What's the postage that we're so familiar with from Haggadah Shabbesah? Leman tiskor es yom kol and we've heard it so many times, we can, we can repeat it ourselves. this, this. It's a posik in the Torah. But if you look at it, says it's lach. It says a lot of things, but there's one thing it doesn't say. Remember Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. The Torah never tells you to remember Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. The beginning of the posik is, keep Pesach, lema'an, in order that you will remember Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, koyemecha which puts remembering Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim every day in a very unusual situation. If we would ask, is it from the Torah? Absolutely. Is it a mitzvah from the Torah? Hard to say yes. Because the Torah never actually said to do it. it just, the Torah clearly wants you to do it. It's clearly an outcome that is desired and promoted by the Torah. And that's enough to make it called De'araisa from the Torah. So you have an amazing classification called De'araisa, but not Taryag. That's what we're talking about. And that's why the Rambam doesn't list it in the 613 mitzvahs. That's the approach of the tzlach. And, and in terms of what we could call mitzvah craft, it's important to be aware a mitzvah needs a tzivoy. It's as simple as that. But if we move there, and, and just to, in case you're wondering what this has to do with Pasha Shalach, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, as quoted by his grandson, Reb Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, in the Yortzeit uh, Shiurim, and others also, the Or Sameach, and uh, Beis Yitzchak, Reb Yitzchak Shmelkas of Lvov, they all arrive at the following explanation. Again, to be clear, our, our, our issue is, why does the Torah, uh, why does the Rambam not uh, uh, enumerate remembering its Yitzchak Mitzrayim every day in Taryak? There's another principle of the Rambam. Sometimes the Torah can tell you to do something. But it's not a mitzvah of Taryag because it's a branch of another mitzvah. It's a detail of another mitzvah. And the Rambam's classic example is, in any given korban, the Torah will tell you to do ten things. 
v'shachatu, v'zarku, the, the slaughtered animal, and sprinkle the blood, and offer the parts, and eat them. And, and, and each one is a tzivoy, but they're not ten mitzvahs, because they're all details in the family called the mitzvah of Ola, or the mitzvah of chatos, or, or whatever it is. So that is the principle. Sometimes something can be absolutely from the Torah. It's just not an independent mitzvah of Taryag because it's, it's a branch of a broader mitzvah. What does this have to do with us? How does our Parsha end? The final section of Parsha Shalach is the Parsha of Tzitzis. And it ends by saying, Ani Hashem Elokeichem asher me'eretz Mitzrayim liyos lachem lelokim. The final Pasuk in the Parsha talks about the Exodus and says what it's all about. What's it for? What's the Exodus for? What's its goal? The goal is to be a God to you. Says Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, there is a mitzvah from the Torah called Kriyat Shema. Reading the Shema. And what is Shema? It's called Kabbalas Omalcha Shemaim, accepting the yoke of heaven. Because the original Exodus was, was performed in order for us to become Hashem's people, because that was the broader goal of the Exodus itself, the mitzvah of remembering it every day is to remember why. And the why is, what Reb Chaim Soloveitchik means to say is, remembering the Exodus is not a separate mitzvah because it's part of a mitzvah called Kriyat Shema. And it's, it's no coincidence that the third parsha of Shema is the parsha of Tzitzis. It's incorporated into the Shema, not just geographically or logistically, because conceptually, the mitzvah of remembering Mitzvah Mitzrayim is subsumed within the rubric of the mitzvah of Shema. And that is why, that says Rupam Soloveitchik, is why the Ramah didn't quote it as a, as a mitzvah. It is a mitzvah of, of Taryag, but not an independent mitzvah. It's part of a broader mitzvah called Kriyat Shema. So these are two, and they are not the only answers, but certainly two of the classic answers to the Rambam's omission, or lack of inclusion, more correctly, of remembering its time every day. Certainly a lot to, to think about. And Mirz Hashem, we will meet again in two weeks' time uh, for the Monday of Parshas Chukas. Uh, in the meanwhile, I wish you all a wonderful evening. Have a good week ahead and then the week after that. And uh, we'll see you again soon, Mitzvah Shem. Thank you.